When actor William Shatner went into space on a Blue Origin rocket, the event was treated as a PR coup for Blue Origin CEO Jeff Bezos. After all, who better to advertise private spaceflight than Captain Kirk? But when Mr. Shatner returned, the event became something else. Visibly overcome by the experience of seeing Earth from space, he spoke poetically and emotionally about the thin atmosphere that makes life possible on our planet. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, that's the thing. The covering of blue, this comforter of blue that we have around us. Later, when the media tried to elicit some lighthearted commentary from the actor about breaching the final frontier, Mr. Shatner directed the conversation back to an impassioned plea to protect our threatened planet. Ruining this planet as we are, we're at the tipping point. We haven't got time to wait 30 years and, and argue about how much should we invest in, in global warming. We're there. I mean, it's just terrible, and I wish I had better news and more entertainment and jokes to tell you. But I was moved to tears by what I saw, and I come back filled with, overwhelmed by sadness and empathy for this beautiful thing we call Earth. The question of how to protect our beautiful planet will be the center of the conversation at the United Nations Climate Talks in Glasgow, Scotland. The meeting's described as the world's last best chance to stave off the worst effects of climate change and protect life under our razor-thin blue atmospheric blanket. But if countries don't agree on how to do that, is there a backup plan? Well, perhaps. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. The backup plan is a large-scale scheme to intervene in the Earth's climate system called geoengineering. For example, injecting aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight. But the idea is so controversial, even basic research on it has stalled. In this episode, if we are not going to reduce carbon emissions sufficiently to counter catastrophic global heating, and currently we are not on track to do that, should geoengineering be a backup plan? This episode of Big Picture Science is Dimming the Sun. In April 2021, some Harvard University scientists planned to run what seemed like a thoroughly innocuous experiment. They were going to launch a balloon 12 miles into the stratosphere from a town in Sweden. Attached to it would be a gondola carrying instruments. The scientists would run some tests, land the balloon, and go home. Not everyone thought the flight was harmless, though. It was an experiment in solar geoengineering called the Stratospheric Controlled Perturbation Experiment, or SCOPEX. Solar geoengineering is a type of large-scale climate modification designed to reflect sunlight back into space, thereby cooling the Earth. For example, by injecting sulfur particles into the stratosphere. You could call it an emergency plan B for the planet. As the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow gets underway, not only are we not on track to reduce emissions enough to keep global average temperatures from increasing 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the target set by the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, some scientists think we're headed for three degrees warming. But the idea of tinkering with a climate by injecting aerosols into the atmosphere makes people anxious, and that's fair enough. 
But the Scopex test flight was only a test of the instrument-carrying balloon. It wasn't a release of aerosols. Even so, the experiment was so controversial that it was canceled due to pressure from Swedish environmental groups. The balloon didn't fly, and some basic questions about solar geoengineering went unanswered. So, the questions we want to explore are, was stopping the solar geoengineering experiment the right thing to do? And who decides whether and how geoengineering research proceeds? What's unnerving about geoengineering is the possibility of unintended consequences. So what's the human track record on modifying natural systems? Well, it isn't always perfect. So let's consider a large engineering project carried out in the beginning of the 20th century. It, too, was considered imperative and required the development of novel engineering techniques. It's the story that science journalist Elizabeth Colbert uses to begin her book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, that examines geoengineering. And it's an arresting example of just how far we'll go to control nature, at least locally, with the best of intentions and the way nature can surprise us. So we begin in Chicago at the end of the 19th century. The river that ran through the city, and it still does, the Chicago River, was a polluted mess. It was collecting all sorts of runoff from the stockyards and farms and human waste. It was said that the Chicago River was so thick with filth that a chicken could walk across it without getting her feet wet. So it was, it was sort of a solid mass of, uh, of sewage, basically untreated sewage. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. Why did the chicken cross the river? <laughs> That's right, because it could, because there was too much human waste in the river. Well, now you have an emerging health crisis because the effluent was flowing into Lake Michigan, which was causing a sanitary problem, to say the least. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a bad idea to be sending your sewage into the source of your drinking water, which is what Chicago had grown up doing. <laughs> which is a pretty good rule of thumb. So... To draw that waste away from Lake Michigan, they built a canal to carry the water south. Is that the Ship and Sanitation Canal? Yes, the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal. I think they called it the Chicago Drainage Canal back then. It became a force of nature because its construction created a backwards-flowing river. So, as you suggested, the, the Chicago River used to flow east into Lake Michigan. And what the Sanitary and Ship Canal did was it connected the Chicago River to the Des Plaines River, which flows into the Illinois River, which ultimately flows into the Mississippi. And it literally reversed the flow. It was engineered to reverse the flow of the Chicago River. So now, instead of flowing into Lake Michigan, it flows basically away from Lake Michigan. And there are now locks to regulate the flow of water. But as remarkable as reversing the direction of the river, the canal also connected two major drainage systems that had evolved separately for thousands of years. Well, the two drainage systems that are connected via the Sanitary and Ship Canal are the Great Lakes Basin, which is this you know drainage basin that sort of spans the U.S.-Canada border, uh, everything that's draining into all of the five Great Lakes. And then there's the Mississippi watershed, which is, you know, one of the biggest watersheds in the world, which drains, you know, most of the continental U.S. And you have to think of all the tributaries of the Mississippi, all, you know, the Missouri, the Ohio, everything draining into the Mississippi and then ultimately into the Gulf of Mexico. And those two basins were separated, not by a great distance, to be honest, 
but by enough space so that an aquatic creature couldn't, you know, just sort of hop out of one and into the other. So it connected two drainage systems that had never before been connected, of course. Uh, But the advantage was, from the perspective of Chicago and the engineers, is that then this water could travel down to Des Plaines and somewhere along the line be treated in in a sewage plant, right? So this was a way to take care of that filthy water. Yeah, and I mean, you have to realize this is happening at the end of the, you know, at the very start of the 20th century, and they weren't you know, planning really on sewage treatment. Now there's a huge sewage treatment plant along the sanitary and ship canal. Uh, and so for a long time, I should also mention, it is very relevant. This sanitary and ship canal was so uh, toxic basically that not many species did pass between them. It was, it was, it was very low oxygen. But as we sort of cleaned up the water, the Clean Water Act, as the sanitary and ship canal became cleaner, it became possible for species to move between these two basins. Well, you can probably guess where this is going. Now we have a new problem, invasive species. One Mississippi animal in particular threatened to wreak havoc on the ecology of Lake Michigan, Asian carp. But before we talk about how the carp are being dealt with, we have to ask, how did carp native to China find themselves in the Mississippi River? Well, could have been the result of shipping? I mean, I don't know. Obviously, <laughs> I'm not sure they made a water trip halfway around the world, but maybe, you know, some ships that were coming into the ports there on the Gulf brought it with them? Yep, that's an excellent that's an excellent um, suggestion. But what actually happened is that... <laughs> this... But wrong. <laughs> but you're wrong. What actually happened <laughs> is that this is the 1960s, and Rachel Carson has written her book, Silent Spring, and she's suggesting very wisely that we move away from chemical solutions to where you just set species against each other instead. In this case, Asian carp were brought over as possible means of controlling vegetation like weeds and algae in aquaculture ponds. And they were brought over to perform different acts of of what we would call biological control. They were going to help clean things up in various ways. They were going to, one species was going to eat aquatic weeds, many of which were themselves invasive species. And they quickly uh, and ironically got out of control, got out of the experimental ponds they were in and experimental stations. They, when they're young, they're called fingerlings. They're very, very tiny. And they just just sort of slip through this mesh that was supposed to be keeping them in. And they just you know, bred madly. They've done incredibly well in the Mississippi system. So they were bred in these, I believe it was in Arkansas, in these breeding ponds, and then just got into tributaries that then led them eventually to the Mississippi? Yes, exactly. So here's a case where Rachel Carson, you know, one of the founders, pioneers of the environmental movement, gave this supposedly benign alternative, and she couldn't have foreseen the consequences, or she didn't. And so now you have the problem of you've connected these drainage systems. It seems like everyone has (laughs) the intentions are good, but now you have a problem because the introduction of Asian carp into Lake Michigan could be catastrophic. So in 2002, the engineers came up with another plan. Can you describe the electric barrier and and how it works? You visited it and what it looks like. So the electric barrier is on the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal, and it is basically just a series of I, I, I'm afraid I don't even know the technical term, but basically there's pulsing 
pulsing electricity, and I mean a lot of electricity through the water. And the idea is that a fish that sort of, you know, noses up to this electrified portion of the river is going to experience a shock. I mean, this sounds pretty bizarre. So if you were standing next to the river, you would see a carp, you know, swim into view and then, you know, twitch and that was it? Oh my, I don't think you would see that. But the animal does receive a shock. The hope is that they will then turn around. Uh, they will not continue up this Shannon Ship Canal, I guess you'd say, and this will keep the fish from entering uh, the Great Lakes. And, um, you know, whether or not this is true or not, no one quite knows, and no one's willing to sort of trust this, so they're actually planning another barrier uh, further south. Okay, there are a lot of twists and bends in this engineered river story. Can you summarize it so far, Seth? Okay, so if I understand it, the first thing they do is they stop the Chicago River, which was basically an open sewer, from draining into Lake Michigan. So they reroute it southward in a series of other rivers so it it drains into the Mississippi and eventually the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, that's fine, but there's this other problem because the uh, these carp from Asia have kind of infiltrated those waters and now they have a path to Lake Michigan, which would, of course, you know, destroy perhaps, or at least have a negative effect on the wildlife in the Great Lakes. <laughs> that's a good summary. You got it. Just as a general comment, right, all these natural systems have found some sort of equilibrium, right? You had a different biota in the Great Lakes than in the Mississippi, uh, simply because for millions of years it's been that way. And now you try and change nature a little bit, what you think is a little bit, but now you've disturbed some systems that are, you know, very entrenched. Which brings us to a point that Elizabeth Colbert describes as not so much the control of nature, but the control of the control. Well, what I mean by that is we have an, a system that's been completely re-engineered already, right? That's the Chicago River, which now is flows in the 180 degree different direction from what it would, you know, quote unquote, naturally do. So we have a re-engineered ecosystem and now we have to impose another form of re-engineering on top of it uh, to try to prevent, you know, the next round of ecological catastrophes. So we are sort of chasing our own tail here. Mm -hmm. So on the subject of the Chicago River, finally, um, if Chicago engineers could go back in time to the 19th century and address that sewage problem, knowing what they know now, did anyone suggest to you what they what they should have done? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I, I don't think Chicago would on some level, you know, be here <laughs> in the city that it is, were it not for the reversal of the Chicago Rivers. I'm not you know, you, you have to do a real, you know, sort of counter reality. As I said, we were talking about the days before, you know, pretty sophisticated sewage treatment. So, you know, we might have had to just have Chicago, you know, Chicago is a much reduced city. I don't know if there was sort of another engineering solution to that or solution in general. We weren't going to, you know, have a big city without uh, a lot of sewage. It's hard to imagine, you know. Okay, so if they could go back in time, they would do it again, because if they didn't do it again, the facts are you wouldn't have Chicago. I mean, you might have Chicago, but be a small little burg. I think so. But there's another twist to the story. Are you ready for it? <laughs> I'm always up for a twist. Yes. 
Well, now some people are having regret about the whole thing, and they're calling for hydrologic separation. Can you imagine what that is? Yeah, it sounds like they're going to try and go back to the previous situation where the Great Lakes were decoupled from the Mississippi River Basin, which is to say the entire interior of the United States. I, I, I can hardly believe it. They, they want to undo it all. They want to hit control Z. <laughs> That's right. They Some people want to go back to the way it was more than 100 years ago. Um, but it's not that easy to do. And the Army Corps of Engineers estimates that the cost would be $18 billion and it would take 25 years to complete. But now there are various groups on the other side that are invested in the situation the way it is, and it's probably going to stay coupled. Uh, Elizabeth Colbert concludes all of this by saying that in the end, it was easier to do the techno fix than to change the lives of the people around it. Well, you can read the story about the engineering attempt to carpe diem, if you will, in journalist Elizabeth Colbert's book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Well, let's get into this idea of geoengineering the planet, pros and cons, next. As the UN Climate Conference considers ways to tackle carbon emissions, we consider dimming the sun in this episode of Big Picture Science. At the UN Climate Conference, now getting underway, the stakes couldn't be higher. I mean, it may feel like we've been saying that for years, but the stakes for the future of the planet are higher every year. We have unfortunately squandered all of our past opportunities to limit the worst of the damages. And, and now it's not just hurricanes in the southeastern US. Now we are dealing with year-on-year -year wildfires across the western United States, as well as the hurricanes here. And then we're also have new awakenings to our vulnerability to drought and extreme rainfall that touches all corners of our nation and of course all corners of the world. So this is a drumbeat of headlines that has been a long time coming and unfortunately it's going to get worse until we decide to reverse this problem. The name of the conference is COP26 and that indicates that this is the 26th meeting of the Conference of the Parties which are the nations that signed the initial UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1995. So that means we've had a quarter century of high-level discussion, pledges, and agreements, such as the Paris Agreement, to reduce carbon emissions. But because enforcement of the goals have been nearly non-existent, many scientists say we're not even close to where we need to be to stave off a worsening climate crisis. My name is Kim Cobb. I'm a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech and the director of our Global Change Program, and I'm a climate scientist by training. Facing a climate emergency might suggest to you that we'd use every tool in our toolbox to cool the fever of the planet. But Dr. Cobb is on the record opposing geoengineering in a recent op-ed for The Hill entitled, We Should Not Play Dice with the Planet. This is literally, the stakes could not be any higher. And the new UN report that was just released in August really brings all of this into incredibly sharp focus. So now that we know, the question is, will we act? 
So to be clear, presently we are not on track to meet our carbon emissions reduction requirements to stay under that 2 degrees Celsius warming threshold that was set in the Paris Agreement and to stave off the very worst effects of climate change. And even by your your own uh, description, we've squandered a lot of time to act in the face of climate change. In some ways, that seems like an argument for geoengineering, because if we are not going to reach these carbon reduction targets, then maybe we do need this dramatic method of cooling the planet. But that is not your opinion. So why do you not support geoengineering as an option? Well, I think we have had some very impactful research to help us understand the costs and benefits of a engineering project on the scope of our entire planet. And uh, really, the data are becoming very clear that while we may have the near-term benefits of reduction in some of the warming that we will have created for ourselves, unfortunately, that will come with a number of side effects, uh, some of which could be very unpleasant. And that's only in the category of known side effects, uh, not to mention the vast category of potentially unknown harmful side effects that uh, we will only learn about, presumably, if we ever do go down that road. So to me, absolutely important to recognize that the only way to a safe and stable climate future is through dramatic near-term emissions reductions. Let's come back to some of those knowns and unknowns. But first, to step back, what is the definition of geoengineering among climate scientists? What's the thumbnail definition? So geoengineering is generally thought of as as any approach um, that leverages typically technological fixes on a planetary scale to intervene either in the inventory of greenhouse gas emissions that are in the sky causing warming or to somehow manipulate the planet's energy balance to dramatically cool the planet even in the face of rising greenhouse gases. And and in fact, I have gone on record as saying that I believe we should conduct more research into solar geoengineering. Uh, Where I draw the line is uh, when people are really taking the science and uh, choosing, cherry picking some of the pleasant facts about a potential technology fix to climate change and bearing some of the unpleasant facts, giving the public the impression that this is you know, the least bad way to cool the planet. Let's look more closely at, at solar geoengineering. In, and you said there are some known and there are some unknown concerns. First, just briefly, what are some of the known concerns? Well, some of the knowns really come from the knowns about global warming. (laughs) So some of the modeling experience uh, that have been conducted to simulate solar geoengineering outcomes have yielded, for example, a a fairly potentially complex map of regional impacts on precipitation and temperature as well, some of which may be very unwelcome. And so it could mean that for some large regions of the world, uh, that actually lands them in a worse spot than the warming would have in the first place. And so that's what I mean by being unable to weigh costs and benefits appropriately uh, without presumably conducting the experiment at a planetary scale. One of the other concerns is something called termination shock, which is a consequence that sounds like would be just as well at home in the language of chemical addiction. 
And it is a kind of addiction. It would be, the planet would be addicted to this form of cooling, wouldn't it? Could you explain how, what termination shock is and how that might come about? Sure. So the only way to achieve sustained cooling in the face of elevated greenhouse gas concentrations is to inject these, this blanket of aerosol particles into the upper stratosphere on a fairly regular basis. Why would that be necessary? Because uh, the lifetime of these particles in the stratosphere is actually fairly short. And if you want to achieve a decade or two of benefits to ride us out of, let's say, uh, peak warming, as, as some advocates would, would have us do, uh, you're talking about a sustained pattern of injections into the stratosphere. And unfortunately, the background warming is still there. You are just masking it with stratospheric uh, induced cooling uh, with this technology approach. And so if something were to happen to our ability to inject those stratospheric particles, be it a terrorist activity, be it a, a global economic meltdown of any kind uh, that would impact our ability to maintain that reflective blanket, then we would see uh, in no, no short order uh, the full brunt of that pent-up warming uh, coming at us in a big hurry in a matter of several years. So this termination shock would almost be like, I think I've heard it described as opening the oven door. You would just get this blast of, of heat. Um, Kim, one of, the, one of the compelling arguments against geoengineering and solar geoengineering in particular is a moral argument. This idea that if we present a solution, a techno fix like this to the problems that technology have gotten us into, we're not addressing the actual problem of climate change. We're not really making changes. There's no incentive to make necessary changes in our lives. Is that a, is that a strong argument in your um, opinion? And can you elaborate on that? Yes, I think it's absolutely part of the human condition that we are we are seeking the path of least resistance through our world, right? Uh, I, I get that. Um, that's what we optimize for in our daily lives and our major life decisions and our you know larger global policy landscape. Absolutely. The problem here is that obviously the path of least resistance has meant our continued dependence on fossil fuels. And now that the damages are coming into clear focus, uh, the path of least resistance actually would dictate moving away from fossil fuels right now and reaping the public health benefits and economic benefits along the way. But for these continued uh, vested interests, which continue to obscure and spread misinformation and now launch pretty effective campaigns championing themselves as as the climate solvers of the 21st century um, in advancing any number of technological fixes to the problem, when in fact the emissions choices that we're making over the next decade are those that will either lock in higher warming levels or reduce uh, warming levels this century. And all of those techno fixes will play no role in whether that occurs or not by 2050. And, and that's just the bottom line. That's the bare uncomfortable facts. We have to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, period, the end. Professor Kim Cobb, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Kim Cobb is a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech and the director of its Global Change Program. 
So she identifies the many ways a geoengineering experiment could backfire, also says she supports basic research into geoengineering. Well, what should the latter entail? You know, is it a computer simulation or a limited real-world experiment? I mean, how far down this path should we travel? It's a good question. And for Harvard University physicist David Keith, we do need, if not a backup plan, then a plan for a backup plan, and for that, we need more research. Dr. Keith leads the solar geoengineering experiment SCOPEX, and we spoke to him about it at a science conference in early 2020. David, you are working on a project that many people seem to have uh, uh, certain concerns about, and that is an approach to perhaps at least interrupting uh, the march of climate change. Tell us what you're doing. So I work on this thing called solar geoengineering, which is a set of ideas about how humans might deliberately intervene in the climate, deliberately alter the Earth's energy balance by some some technology, putting reflective aerosols in the atmosphere, for example, that might partially and imperfectly reduce some of the risks of accumulated carbon dioxide, some of the climate risks of, of the CO2 in the atmosphere. Okay, so tell me what you're proposing here. Uh, uh, I'm not particularly proposing anything. I, uh, or Well... What I'm proposing is that there is a serious worldwide research effort to understand better how these technologies work, how they could work for human benefit, and how we govern them. Can you give me a specific example? Sure. So so putting uh, aerosols in the stratosphere, say 20 kilometers over our heads, that could be done with aircraft that would loft the aerosols up there. That actually appears to be pretty easy. There's no big technological uncertainty about doing that. And it even appears pretty clear that we could make a relatively even uh, a coating of aerosols by uh, observing them and adjusting where they went. And uh, But for aerosols, I'm talking the most, the one we understand best is sulfuric acid, which should seem like a horrifying idea, but that's the thing that nature does and the thing we understand the best. When you say nature does it, how does nature put sulfuric acid into the atmosphere? Uh, by big volcanoes and also by some um, biology of the ocean surface. It releases something called uh, dimethyl sulfide that then some of that makes its way up into the upper atmosphere. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is you're going to replace some volcanoes, which are kind of unpredictable, uh, with jet aircraft, which are predictable, and have them put this compound up in the atmosphere to reflect some of the sunlight. What fraction of the sunlight would you reflect with this kind of an approach? My view is we need to study this seriously. I'm not proposing to do it. I'm proposing that we understand its risk better before some country goes ahead and does it. The fact is that potential benefits of doing it to reducing human suffering look large, and so the temptations to do it will be big. But I think I want to push away from the idea that I'm somehow magically proposing to do it. I would oppose any individual doing it. At this point, I propose oppose anybody doing it. But it's not what I'm doing. But, but how do you do research on it without doing it? Uh, lots of ways. We do research on all sorts of things without doing them. I know people who do research on large epidemics without starting epidemics. There are people who do research on a a huge number of things that they don't want to have happen or they think might want to have happen without actually doing them. What they do is they have models and the models have uncertainties due to kind of processes and then they do studies of those individual processes. So maybe they want to understand, you know, how flammable a certain new kind of building material is. They can test that. If this were to prove practical in the sense that it would have the desired effect, I mean, how many aircraft would, order of magnitude, 
how many aircraft would it take to put enough aerosols into the atmosphere that it would, uh, you know, get the job done? I mean, are you talking about every every plane on the planet? Are you talking about a handful of planes? What would it be? No, it's it's frighteningly practical. That's part of why it's so politically scary. So even quite a small country could build the fleet of aircraft you need to do this. So if you wanted to stop the world warming for, say, 50 years, you'd need to build out a fleet of aircraft. After sort of yeah, 20 years, you need a fleet of something like 50 aircraft. And these are specialized aircraft, they're quite expensive, but quite expensive means a few billion dollars a year at the beginning, you know, rising towards $10 billion a year at the end. That would be to globally stop warming. And, and to give you a sense, that is absurdly cheap. The costs of climate damages mid-century are about 1% of GDP, so a trillion a year. Um, so, so these are, costs are so low that costs are not the issue. I think what, what's horrifying in a way about these technologies, at least some of them could be done easily with current technological capabilities. The issue is about how well they would work, what the risks are, and how we control them. The hard part is not physically doing it. Okay, well, you talk about the risks. I mean, are the risks that maybe some country will decide to do this because it is suffering uh, disproportionately yeah. from climate change yeah. and do it without, you know, look, I'm not going to, I can yes. afford to do this without your uh, go-ahead. Is, is that the risk? That, that, that Certainly the fact that it's so cheap and the fact that climate risks are growing means that, yes, unilateral action by some country is a risk. And, and so I think part of my view is that's why we need to understand much better what the risks are, how we monitor them, and to begin real dialogue between countries about how to manage these technologies. Are you getting anywhere with that? Yeah, I think we're getting a, a substantial place. So maybe most importantly, a man called Janusz Pastor, who is formerly the chief advisor to Ban Ki-moon for climate, so the person at the center of the whole UN climate process, is now running an effort on geoengineering governance. And there have been the beginning of real international conversations at a pretty high level. There were uh, big conversations at the UN Environment Assembly last year. There's the beginning of conversations actually right up to the Security Council now. So there is really the beginning of, of, of conversations that are serious. Is there any practical alternative that you see in terms of mitigating simply the amount of solar flux hitting the Earth? I mean, could we, you know, drop the millions of shaving mirrors on Siberia and just reflect a lot of stuff from the ground without having to put anything into the atmosphere and saving the jet fuel? Uh, yes, I mean, no doubt you could do this by putting reflective materials on the ground, uh, mylar sheets or whatever. I think when you actually do the math to have an equivalent impact, it turns out you have to have much more total jet fuel, if you like, much more total energy, much more environmental consequence. So if you really look what it would take to reflect 1% of the sunlight by reflective materials on the ground, that means you need to cover an area as big as the United States, 10 million square kilometers with reflective material. If you do the math of the cost to do that, let alone the impacts, they turn out to be gigantic. That's the kind of leverage and, and it comes from the underlying physics of the fact that small aerosols are very good light scatterers and that the stratosphere kind of naturally holds them up for two years. Finally, David, uh, if this turns out to be something that we elect to do, when I say we, yeah. I mean, you know, the international community, yeah. it would have to be nothing less. What time scale do you foresee for seeing it happen? Are we talking about, you know, five years from now, 50 years from now? What's the time scale? I think if there was a clear consensus of, say, some coalition of countries to do it, you could begin doing it in five years, uh, at least some methods. Uh, if you're asking me when I think it will happen, I have no idea. I can't imagine it happening sooner than, say, 15 years. But I think if you ask, will people begin to look at this seriously within, say, by 2050, it seems to me pretty likely. David Keith, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. A pleasure.
David Keith is a professor of physics at Harvard University who helps lead the solar geoengineering project SCOPEX. And it was his team that wanted to do the balloon instrument test flight in April 2021, the one that was canceled due to pressure from environmental groups. So it sounds to me like we have two points of view here. I mean, are we going to use geoengineering to help deal with the climate problem, or are we not? As a scientist, I have to say, I favor the experimental approach to answering that question. If you can't do the experiments, then you have to model what you think is going to happen. And models might be good, but there's always those unexpected uh, you know, things that you didn't have in your model that could radically change what happens. Well, this is a story about what is unexpected and whether or not we should go down this slippery slope at all. So will the climate discussions in Glasgow force our hand? Well, that's next. It's Dimming the Sun on Big Picture Science. Let's do the numbers regarding the implications of climate change for life on planet Earth, at least for the next few hundred years. In 2015, as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, nations pledged to limit the global average temperature increase to, ideally, 1.5 degrees Celsius, but certainly well below 2 degrees Celsius, all with respect to pre-industrial levels. Well, the countries had five years to present their emission reduction plans, To hold the temp to those levels, however, would require a 55% emission reduction by 2030 compared to 1990, and with the further goal of net zero emissions by 2050, that is to say carbon neutral by mid-century. Well, when representatives arrived in Glasgow for the UN climate meeting COP26, they had fallen far short of meeting their targets since Paris. According to the UN Environmental Program, the group that puts out the emissions gap report, pledges made since the Paris Agreement will cut only an additional 7.5 percent greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Remember, the goal was to have 55 percent cut in emissions. Wow, that's a significant difference, 7.5 rather than 55 percent. I mean, it's like putting only one-seventh of a roof on your house when you live in a rainy climate. And after all, we're talking here, among other things, about the survival of many species on Earth. The Amazon rainforest, the coral reefs, the fate of low-lying countries, whether we'll have sufficient food or whether our water will have sufficient quality, even whether entire ecosystems will collapse. The list of what hangs in the balance is obviously long and sobering, and that doesn't clarify the question of whether geoengineering is a morally right or necessary action, but it does present the stark consequences of years of inaction. So now we're scrambling to make up for lost time in a meeting that's been called the last best chance to stave off the worst effects of climate change. But there is hope, says Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, if we can get our act together, that is. The clock is ticking. The emissions gap is the result of a leadership gap, but leaders can still make this a turning point to the inner future instead of a tipping point to climate catastrophe. Will geoengineering, a large-scale technological mitigation, be part of our blue sky thinking? 
Well, if so, it may change our skies forever. And that idea is what prompted the title of journalist Elizabeth Colbert's book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Well, Under a White Sky refers to the idea slash fact, I guess, that, you know, if you were doing, you know, very serious solar geoengineering, injecting a lot of particles uh, into the stratosphere, people who have sort of modeled that have said it would sort of change the the tint of the sky. Now, in an urban center, there's, you know, interference between, you know, you and the sun, and you're, you're not getting a perfectly blue sky. But if you were doing solar geoengineering, then there presumably would be no place that you could go that there wouldn't be, you know, a, a sort of slight tinge to the sky. So where does the debate over geoengineering stand as representatives from around the world gather for the climate conference? Elizabeth Colbert gives us her big picture perspective of the situation on the ground. Elizabeth, you visited David Keith in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when his team was working on the gondola that would be flown as part of the test flight in Sweden in April 2021. That experiment never flew. Were you surprised when you learned that it had been canceled? No, not not terribly. These are, you know, solar geoengineering is extremely controversial. This experiment, it's absolutely true that it would not have altered the climate in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you know, everyone traveling to the experiment would have altered the climate a lot more than the actual experiment. But people do see it as, you know, rightly or wrongly, as sort of the beginning of a sanctioning of this technology, and that's extremely controversial. This um, raises the the question of who decides whether geoengineering research is even done, never mind implemented, and what thoughts can you bring to that discussion? Well, I think it's a very, very interesting question. I, I think that both sides make very compelling arguments. You know, on the one hand, you know, it's very rare to say, well, we can't even research a technology that's that's pretty unusual. We have some pretty you know scary technologies out there that are being researched. So that's sort of denying yourself knowledge. You know, one bit of knowledge might be simply this is not possible. That might be useful to know. But on the other hand, you know, another compelling argument can be made that once we start down these paths, you know, we tend to you know it's sort of like the Chekhovian argument. Once there's a gun, you know, in the first act, it's going to go off in the final act. And once you start researching these things, we tend to, and, you know, if we found out we could do it, uh, then there would be increasing potentially pressure to actually do it. And many people find that a very, very repugnant thought. As a, as a reporter who has covered this for, for years, are you willing to come down on the record on one side or the other? Um, no, I really am not. You know, in my book, Under White Sky, I uh, I hope I present both sides. I do think both sides have compelling arguments. And fortunately, I don't get to make that decision and I don't have to make that decision. <laughs> Will geoengineering be discussed at COP26? And I mean, of course, it'll be discussed in the hallways. Uh, but is it part of the official agenda at Glasgow? I, I doubt that very much. I don't think so, no. Why? Why do you think it's not part of the official agenda? Well, um, I also don't have a great answer for that, except to say that the, you know, cops are 
building off of what's called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It, the COP is the Committee of the Parties, uh, or Conference of the Parties, excuse me. That's what a COP is. It's a countries that are party to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the goal of the, of the Framework Convention on Climate Change is to avoid dangerous interference with the climate system. So it is working off of that original document, which, you know, had nothing to do with climate change, had everything to do with reducing emissions. It's interesting because I thought what you would say is that geoengineering is still too controversial to discuss in a public forum like that at that level. Well, it just is not part of, of the dialogue. Will it will it ever be? Will someone at some point, you know, will we get to a point where people say, now this needs to be on the table at, at a COP? And then will you have long arguments as to whether it's germane to the COP? All of these are questions I can't answer. Can you give us just an overview of what's at stake uh, in this climate change conference in Glasgow? Well, yes. What's at stake is um, in Paris back in 2015, everyone got together and uh, came up with this treaty that was kind of a potluck. Everyone brought to it. Every country just made a commitment. This is what we're going to do. Everyone agreed that these commitments were not good enough, but it was better than nothing. And the idea was to come back after five years and reassess and hopefully strengthen countries' commitments. That was put off by a year because of COVID. Now, now we're there. And the question is, will countries come and make more stringent sort of commitments? Well, finally, um, let's say we can't come to an agreement in Glasgow about how to reduce emissions, and we're not currently on track to do so, to bring the emissions down below the two-degree threshold that was set by the Paris Agreement. And in fact, some scientists say we're on track for three degrees of warming. So if that trajectory doesn't change during this UN conference, do you imagine that the conversation about geoengineering will change? Will we have to think more seriously about, you know, a break the glass sort of plan? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that that's going to be answered or not answered in Glasgow. It's going to be answered by what is actually happening on the ground, because unfortunately, even when people make commitments, countries make commitments at these conferences, they don't necessarily follow through. But the bottom line is, I do think that every year that goes by that we add, you know, very significant amounts of CO2 to the atmosphere is a year that brings us closer to forcing potentially some kind of conversation about, about geoengineering because we simply don't have a lot of tools in our toolbox to deal with climate change rapidly. The only tools we have either slow climate change or would eventually you know, reverse it, but over in very, 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 very long periods of time. Elizabeth Colbert, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth Colbert is a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Sixth Extinction. And she spoke with us about her most recent book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Well, Seth, the big picture of one of the biggest questions facing us, which is how to tackle climate change, is will geoengineering play a role? And the question that we asked at the top of the show was, should that solar geoengineering experiment have been canceled? And who should determine whether geoengineering research goes forward? Yeah, 
Well, you're right, Molly. And, uh, you know, this is a tough one as a scientist. And I said this before. You know, I favor experiments because if you don't do an experiment, you only think you know something, right? But on the other hand, it's also a good point that if you let that balloon fly and you say, hey, look, we're trying to figure out how to put aerosols into the atmosphere, you know, it certainly doesn't sound like you're going to not do that uh, despite the results of the experiment. So, yeah, I can understand the danger. Or whatever the geoengineering experiment would be, because this is just one experiment out of many possible experiments that could be run on this sort of large-scale mitigation. Yeah, and I also have to say, not every time that you're on a slippery slope, do you actually fall down the slippery slope. Sometimes a slippery slope is, you know, on the edge of innovation, and it might be a good thing. It's interesting that you said that sometimes you just need to have bold plans and good things can come from that. (laughs) But then we think back to that Chicago River engineering story. I mean, that seemed like an unmitigated good, right? You get rid of that sewage and you send it down a canal. Sounds good. But then you end up linking these two river systems. And I would bet that no one in the early part of the 20th century imagined that we would be electrocuting carp in the beginning of the 21st century. I mean, they just couldn't have foreseen that. And we made the point that we have put off taking climate change seriously and making the changes to our lives that are necessary. Had we addressed climate change 26 years ago at that first conference of the parties, uh, we might not be weighing implementing a techno fix because we would have brought down the emissions and we would actually be in much better shape. Okay, it's easy enough to say what we should have done. But my read of history is that humanity usually puts things off that are unpleasant or difficult until the situation gets so dire that they really have to do something. And I guess that's where we are today. This show is made possible thanks to the help and the considerable talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff. And we'd like to take a moment to say farewell and best of luck in her new adventure to assistant producer Sarah Derwin. We never took her talent, calmness under deadline, or expertise in geology for granite. <laughs> One last pun for you, Sarah, but we will miss working with her. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David, and to NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, investigates the physics of planetary atmospheres, including our own. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring the big questions around solar geoengineering ahead of the 2021 climate talks, is called Dimming the Sun. 